So what we're going to be talking about is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. The Jews had, have a tradition, um, an ancient tradition that during the Passover Seder meal, they don't allow leavened bread. They only allow unleavened bread during this time, the, the days of unleavened bread. And that's the only thing that they can eat. And leaven is a substance that is used in bread, do, bread dough that causes it to rise when it's in the oven. And typically you use yeast, you sprinkle a little bit on, and a lump of dough fluffs up and becomes a nice hot loaf. Um, but the bread that the Jews use during Passover is unleavened. It has no yeast, so it doesn't rise when it's baked. It's flat. It becomes more like, you know, really flat, hard pita bread, and it really like a giant, bland, disgustingly tasting Ritz cracker. And the author of this book, Acts, is Luke. And he's recording the history of the early church um, from after Jesus' ascension to the starting of the churches to the spread of the gospel. And in the prequel to this book, the gospel of Luke, Jesus talks about leaven. In chapter 12, he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, because there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon housetops. Jesus hates hypocrisy. And throughout his life, he was constantly annoyed at people who claimed that they were better than they actually were. The Pharisees especially, they were a religious group of elites who knew their Bible backwards and forwards, who knew everything about God, but just didn't know God himself. Even though they had put on a face, everything was good for them. They had everything figured out, but on the inside, they were just as sinful and dirty as any common criminal. But Jesus changed all that. He taught that even the wicked could know God and be accepted by him. He taught that even the poor could serve God and please him. He taught that everyone could be forgiven by God and were now loved by him. And when he was crucified, when he rose again, when he conquered sin and death on behalf of all who placed their faith in him, the playing field was even for all. Now the poor could become rich in Christ. The wicked could be washed clean in Christ. And as the angels proclaimed on Jesus' birthday, peace and goodwill was now affordable to all men. It was free. As the Bible says, God loved the world so that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So belief in Jesus affords us eternal life, salvation. But not only that, as we've seen in the book of Acts so far, Jesus makes us unified together. He removes barriers between people. And now people who were divided otherwise are now united by a common Savior and grafted in like a branch into a tree, into a new family, the church, God's people. And Jesus now having ascended on high to the right hand of God the Father, he sent then his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, to fill and empower us to take up his mantle 
and to show him to the entire world. But hypocrisy, the thing Jesus hated, survives. Even now today, it's surviving. Jesus compared hypocrisy to leaven because leaven, you only need a pinch, a little pinch of yeast thrown into the loaf or to the lump, and it works its way in. It's not like a little bit of yeast goes on to the end of the lump and that part puffs up like a pizza bubble. It's like, no, it works its way through. And in the same way, hypocrisy, pretending to be something you're not, works its way through the whole church. The Bible says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that it will be a new lump. The Bible says, get rid of your hypocrisy. Stop pretending to be someone you're not. Admit that you're wrong. Admit that you sin. Admit that you fail. Admit that you're in desperate need of God every day. Admit that God is pure and you are not. And Jesus' main command for his church was this. Love one another. He says, love each other. This is how, he said, people would even know we were his followers, that we love each other. But hypocrisy kills love. It destroys love. Instead of saying, I'll love you no matter what, hypocrisy says, I'll act like I love you if you act like me. Or it says, I'll love you if you do this, this, and this. Or it says, I'll love you if it in some way benefits me. And that's not the love that Jesus shows us. That's not the love that would go to the cross for us. Hypocrisy goes to the soup kitchen and serves and then tweets about it. Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. We serve, we love, because Jesus loved. And this is the main complaint that people have about the church. Oh, the church is just a bunch of hypocrites. It's true. Hypocrisy is alive and well. And it's affecting the entire lump of dough. So where we find ourselves in Acts is that the church is fulfilling Jesus' main command. They're loving. They're loving each other. Things are going great. Signs and wonders are happening. Miracles. People are being healed. Um, There's persecution, oppression going on, but God is answering their prayers at every corner. Thousands of people now believe in Jesus, and it's only been a few months since the inception of the church. But we see here that it doesn't take long for hypocrisy to find a way in. All right, so let's read Acts 5, starting in verse 1. It says, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself, with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. This was a Jewish custom. Right after someone dies, you bury him. It goes on. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me, 
whether you sold the, pri- the land for such and such a price. And he said, she said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. Shoot. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. So, where we find ourselves, the church just began. Things are going great. And the church at this point is characterized by a few things. It's characterized by being unified in Christ. It's characterized by tons of wonders and signs and miracles and healings, powerful preaching and huge crowds following, even though the leaders weren't even trained in preaching and they were not known for being good speakers. Um, And now what's going on is that the church is starting to be known for their deeds. And they have started sharing their possessions. They've started caring for the poor. They've started uh, providing for those in need. Uh, There's thousands of believers, and many of them are poor. Many of them are sick. Um, And so homeowners, the wealthier among them, would, like, you know, sell their homes and use that money to provide for the needs of the people. And then people would sell their, their items and provide for other basic needs like, you know, medical bills, I imagine, food, lodging, whatever people needed. The church was taking care of people and heading it all up were the apostles. God is at work and momentum is starting to build in the church. The mission of God is going forward and it's the mission of God to spread Jesus, to spread faith, hope, and love to people You know, poor, destitute people could now find hope. People who'd never had hope before. The wicked could change and find forgiveness. People who were cast out before. Those without purpose found ultimate joy in serving the Lord. People who were wayward before. Liars started telling the truth. Cheaters started coming clean. Murderers started loving. But along with God's mission, always comes opposition. And so here we read one of Satan's counterattacks. And these are, you know, these are typical Satan strategies. He's got three main strategies, oppression, distraction, and corruption. And last week, Justin taught us about a time when the Pharisees, the religious elites, persecuted the church, tried to quelch them, tried to stop them. Persecution, oppression, And Satan tried, it didn't work. Satan also tries to distract his church, God's church. Uh, Find something that concerns us. Find something else that entertains us that we find is better use of our time. And here we see he tries to corrupt the church from within. So he fills the heart of a man named Ananias. And Ananias was married to this lady named Sapphira. And, you know, they were a married couple. I don't know if they were happily married. I wish they were alive so I could go up to them and go, hey, Ananias, how's married life? Because I just got married nine months ago, and that seems to be all people want to ask me. Hey, Riley, how's married life? Oh, gosh. It's good. 
So Ananias and Sapphira decide they want to join on this bandwagon. They want to be getting good with the church. So they decide to sell their property. This is a good thing. But they decide to keep part of the profits for themselves while telling the church, oh yeah, we gave all of it. So people go, oh wow, what a sacrificial gift. That's so amazing. When in reality, they had just made a profit off a real estate sale. Their motive was pride. They wanted to look good in front of everybody. Their motive was also greed. They wanted to make a profit. They wanted to serve the God of money while at the same time serving the God of the Bible. And they're married, and they agreed together to do this, which, you know, when you're married, you generally want to agree, but you don't agree to do bad things. It just makes it twice as bad. But what they did was voluntary. They didn't have to do this. They didn't have to sell their property, nor did they have to give all the profits to the apostles. They could have said, hey, we're only going to give you part. And Peter would have been like, okay, that's fine. But they said we were going to give you all, or they said this is all, but they kept part. I mean, Peter says in verse 4, he says, after the land was sold, wasn't it under your control? You could have done what you wanted. They gave and implied that they were giving out of sacrifice. They tried to serve both God and money, but Jesus says you can't serve both. He said you cannot serve both God and mammon, who's the God of money. Greed will tempt you to do things you never thought possible. Lying, cheating, deceiving. And Ananias and Sapphira were liars. They were actors in a play. They were wearing masks. They were hypocrites. And through them, Satan had infiltrated the church. And this was something God simply cannot allow, could not allow. The church is dependent here on being filled with the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, the helper, as Jesus described, is the giver of powerful gifts of boldness, unity, healing. And he's the creator of new life in each of our hearts. And when you come to faith in Christ, you receive that gift of the Holy Spirit who cleanses you and gives you a new nature, one that now despises sin and craves a relationship with God. And it's being filled with the Holy Spirit that gave the apostles boldness who before had none. And it's being filled that gives us here as a church the ability to serve and change this city for Jesus. And he's the same Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, as he is today. He's powerful, he's on mission, and he's ready to move. But Ananias was not filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias was filled with something else. Read verse 3 again. Peter, miraculously knowing what's going on in, in Ananias' heart, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? Ananias wasn't filled with the Spirit. He was filled with Satan himself. Satan had influenced him to lie to the very Holy Spirit who empowered the church that he was trying to get in good with. But notice verse 4. Peter says, why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Satan influenced Ananias to lie, but Ananias conceived the deed in his own heart. He couldn't say, oh, the devil made me do it. We are responsible for the things we do. You know, the church at this time was fragile. The church was a baby. 
This was the only church that we're reading about. I don't really know anything about babies yet. I am expecting a baby in May, and I'm excited about that. But as of right now, I don't know anything about babies. And I refuse to change a diaper unless it's my own child. And I I just don't want to change any diapers until I have to. But I do know this about babies. You have to be really careful about what you expose the baby to. They're fragile. They get sickly uh, way, eas- way more easily than adults. They, they can die. And the church is a baby. And it's already infected. It's already corrupted. These people have infiltrated. So in this instance, God executes some swift judgment. He kills Ananias and then later kills his wife. I don't know the biology of it. I don't know if they, like, heard it, and then they had a stroke, or, or they had a heart attack, or Peter's words were poisonous to their ears or something. But I imagine Peter was just as surprised as anyone to see people just drop dead in front of him. I mean, look, in verse 10, immediately Sapphira fell at his feet. That's where they had just put the money. So Peter was probably grieved that it even had to happen. God's judgment arrives on the scene. And so the many signs and wonders and amazing miracles and um, evidences of God's mercy and grace are joined by an omen of God's judgment. And what's the result of this, this judgment? Verses 5 and 11 say, great fear spread throughout the whole church. People were afraid. People were like, whoa, we need to be careful. We need to respect this. We cannot be a part of this and have hypocrisy in our hearts. The message was sent and received. God is not mocked, the Bible says. You can't deceive God. I mean, as Jesus said, the hypocrisy in your hearts will soon be shouted on rooftops, things done in secret. You see, God God has never turned his nose at someone who's honest. I mean, even if you're honest in your failures, God has never turned down someone who's hurting if you'd only cry out to him for help. God will never turn down a sinner who seeks to come clean and be forgiven. He knows all. Why would you pretend with God? So this here is the ultimate end for all hypocrisy, death, judgment. And I know many of us read this story, if, you, if you're one of these, and you read this and you think, man, that's harsh. God, did, did they really have to die? Did they really have to be made into an example? It, it is a sobering tale, um, and that's, that's how I felt when I first read it. But then as I thought, I realized something. I realize that my offense at this story was not rooted in God's judgment. It was rooted in something else, my own hypocrisy. That when I read this, I am Ananias and Sapphira. I'm the one with the crooked heart. I'm the one who tries to serve God and maintain my own glory and seek my own well-being. I'm the hypocrite that everybody complains about in the church. I'm a Christian hypocrite. But here's the key. It's not about being perfect. 
You don't have to be perfect to avoid being a hypocrite. You only need to confess and repent for the forgiveness of sins. Admit you are wrong. Admit you make mistakes. Tell the truth. Find somebody here. Confide in them. Someone who can point you to Christ. Point you towards forgiveness and repentance. And at that point of repentance, God then separates you from your sin. And I thank him for that. I'm not perfect, and I never will be until the day when I see Jesus face to face and he finishes the work that he's just started in my heart down here on earth. But as for right now, I'll admit when there's a part of my heart that doesn't line up with what Jesus has for me. Ananias didn't do this. Ananias tried to compromise. He tried to have both. He tried to serve God and money. Seriously, if only he had lived in America, he would have had a promising career. He could have been a televangelist. He wanted to give God only half his heart. But in that situation, Satan will gladly take half your heart because Satan knows God will take all your heart or none at all. Now there's more to this story. Ananias and Sapphira's story of deceit and death is really just an interruption and a corruption of some amazing things that were happening with the church at that time, and God dealt with them. But I want to flip back and read before this. In chapter 4, verse 32, flip back a page and read this. Starting in verse 32, it says, And the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Luke says they were all of one heart and soul. This is like his favorite description of the church. He says it in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He says things like they were of one mind, they were in one, of one accord, they all agreed. They were united. Barriers were struck down. Racial and cultural boundaries were erased. The church was thousands of very diverse people. And it says, not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property. Now, when you read this, it looks an awful lot like communism or like some sort of hippie commune. And you imagine like shirtless kids running around wondering who their father is. But common property here doesn't mean common ownership of property. It's not a matter of everybody sold everything and it went into the ownership of the state. It wasn't like that. It was rather a perspective. It says, not one claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. It was individual, willing, giving up of your ownership for the needs of others. See, because communism says what's yours is ours. But this says what's mine is yours. This was denial of private ownership for the needs of the others, not common ownership of everything. And this had begun way early. In chapter 2, it says they begun to sell their possessions for the needs of people. And now, this is more of an inside look at that. It goes on to say, And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So they were giving testimony. They were preaching the meat the center, the central uh, doctrine of this new spirit-led community was 
the preaching of the gospel and the gospel of the resurrected Jesus Christ. It was good news. And this news of the resurrected Christ who was victorious and who gave all and then arose victorious, conquering sin and death, this is their motivation for giving. There are many reasons to give. You could give because you want to help. You could give because it'll make you feel good. You could give because people think it's cool. You could give and then post it to Facebook and people go, that's why you're such a good person. You could give because you feel guilty. You could give because a street canvasser is annoying and they won't leave you alone. I think that's most of us here. But we give because Jesus gave, because God is a generous God and we are a generous people. And we take care of our own because they are God's own. When it says everything was in common, that means everything was owned by God. It goes on to say, and abundant grace was upon them all. Abundant grace was everywhere, and it was evident. And what, how, how was this grace manifested? It's, it goes on to say, for there was not a needy person among them. This is the grace. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. This is abundant grace. This is the grace of God shown by his church. People were selling their land, their houses. This is what the church was doing. This is the bandwagon that Ananias and Sapphira wanted to jump on. Homeowners, landowners would sell and give their profits to the apostles to distribute the money to those that had need. That isn't just distributing money to anybody. And it wasn't giving the money to the apostles' bank accounts so that they could skim off the top. They would lay it at their feet. The apostles wouldn't even spend it. They would use it for others. And for the people who gave, this involved a lot of faith. This involved faith that I'm going to be okay. I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to be houseless now for the needs of people. It involved a lot of trust. Giving money, that much money to the apostles, trusting that they will manage it well, it involved worship, saying to God, my money's not my own. I'm going to give it for your purposes. And this was completely voluntary, completely uncoerced, and completely spirit-led. This wasn't like an admission fee, like in order to be part of the church, you got to sell your house. This wasn't a 10% quota for membership. There was no coercion, not even any specific teaching by the apostles that this should be done. This was completely uncoerced, up to the individual, between them and the Holy Spirit, voluntary, out of the goodness of what God had given them in their hearts. So, when you read this, if you're reading this and going, wow, Christian communism, we should do that. This, you can't be dogmatic about this. You cannot make a rule of law out of this and go, this is how all spirit-led churches are to behave. We're supposed to give everything to a pot and, and become a commune. You can't decree that. Why? Because Peter, go remember what Peter said to Ananias, what you do with your money, that was your own. You could do whatever you wanted with it. This was voluntary. And it was completely spirit-led and up to the individual to give. The Bible says, 
God loves a, a cheerful giver. You should not be coerced. Your arm should not, not be twisted into giving. So in the middle of what's going on here, which is some pretty amazing stuff, an amazing spirit-led community that takes care of the needs of others, it look at what it says. It says, there was not a needy person among them. People were so generous that even those who had the greatest needs were taken care of. There were no poor among them. We can really take a lesson here. And so in, in the middle of this, we're introduced to who become, um, someone who becomes one of the most preeminent like, church leaders, a main character of the book of, Acts, book of Acts, Barnabas. In verse 36, it says, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it the, at the apostles' feet. So this guy named Joseph, his nickname was Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was obviously known for being an encouraging great guy. He was selfless. He sold his home in Cyprus, and he gave the money to the apostles. He was a Levite. That means he was probably a worship leader at his local synagogue. Like he was fairly well liked, it seems. And he becomes, later, he, later on, he becomes uh, the Apostle Paul's partner in the missionary missionary field. Here we see his reputation start to grow. He's an encourager. He establishes um, himself among the apostles uh, at his showing of great faith and deed. Uh, he sells his house for the poor. He's recognized. He's praised. But if you were to ask him, he'd go, oh, no, dude, it's all Jesus. You'd be like Tim Tebow. And he gives credit to where credit is due, God. Ananias and Sapphira, however, they probably saw Barnabas, and they saw his reputation, and so they, in their pride and jealousy of his praise and his eminence in the church, they wanted that, and they craved that, and so they schemed to get it. But they missed the point. See, because to be first in God's eyes means to be last, to be a servant, and Barnabas knew this. Barnabas followed Jesus in this way. But Ananias and Sapphira wanted to somehow keep up appearances, boost their ego, I don't know, help their business in some way. There are a lot of similarities that we can read between Barnabas and uh, Ananias. Both sold their land. That's a good thing. Both gave money to the poor. Both committed money to the apostles' stewardship. These are good things. There's a little bit of a difference, though. Barnabas donated all the profits of his land, uh, whereas Ananias donated only a fraction, but told everybody, oh, yeah, this is everything. The sin wasn't in giving only half. He could have done that if he wanted. The sin was in the lying. Because, really, by all accounts, what he did, you'd probably look at Ananias and go, oh, yeah, that's awesome. He gave half of his money to the poor. That's cool. It was a good thing. But here's the bottom line. His motive was pride, and his motivator was the devil. And his end goal was to boost his own ego. And in the process, he blasphemed God. And God doesn't look at your checkbook and get impressed. He doesn't look at the rich and go, oh, yeah, they're better because they're rich, and they're philanthropists, and they can give millions. 
he's more pleased with the guy who, out of genuine worship, wants to please God and serve others, so he gives everything he can. He's more pleased with him than the corporation who gives millions just to boost PR. What God wants is your heart. Your whole heart. Not part of it. Giving part of it is called hypocrisy. He wants all of it, especially the ugly parts. And you know what? This works out great because what we need most is to give our heart to God. Without his charge of it, it's just a dead heart, not beating, broken down by sin. But he makes us new. He gives us a new heart. So how? The answer is, and usually is, always will be, Jesus And here at this church, we love to preach Jesus to Capitol Hill and to all Seattle uh, to make him known and to see lives transformed by the power of his Holy Spirit. We also desire to imitate this church in Jerusalem who gave willingly, genuinely, sacrificially to those in need, giving, giving up everything. Nothing that we have should we regard as our own. We need to be ready to give for those who are in need and not keep anything back for ourselves and not give out of selfish ambition or hypocrisy. There's a song that I love that we sing here um, called Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And it was written in 1882 by this heartbroken guy named George Matheson. He didn't have a girlfriend, evidently, and that depressed him. And he was alone at his sister's wedding, and uh, he was sad. And uh, so he went in his room, and he's depressed. And instead of writing some piece of crap dashboard confessional song, he wrote this song. He wrote these words. He wrote, Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in its ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. I give thee back the life I owe. Our life is not our own. It was bought with a price by Jesus at the cross. And now, all sacrifice, all giving, all worship is now done for Jesus. And everything else is hypocrisy. Acting out of a life that's not even yours anymore. So rather than being like Ananias and pursuing our own goals and trying to appear more spiritual than we are, We should be like Barnabas, be honest, live a transparent life, give genuinely out of worship and give it all. Give selflessly because Jesus has given selflessly and because we are no longer our own. We don't own our lives. So we give our lives back to God, which makes our lives so much richer and fuller. So let's pray and let's bring ourselves before God right now. Lord, we bring ourselves before you as hypocrites, honestly, sinners. um, And we're so thankful, Lord, that you have mercy on us. We're so thankful for Jesus who showed his love to us when we were enemies of God. And Lord, uh, I pray for each one here that we would give our whole heart to you, that we would not hold back, 
that we would be ready to give what the Holy Spirit uh, prods within us to give. Um, and Lord, when we read about Ananias and Sapphira, I'm grieved, and I'm honestly kind of scared at times that maybe you, that maybe sometimes you, you're not pleased. God, that that my crookedness, my tendency to go wayward is inhibitive of any blessing or any sort of inheritance or good thing that could come my way. I don't know. But I also know that in your word you say you're a loving God and you forgive those who confess. Your word says confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive your sins. So Lord, I confess that I need you and that that I'm a sinner and that I need to be brought before you Lord, by your grace and your love, and I need to change. So God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill us once again to, uh, to be bold and to change and to imitate this church that we see in Jerusalem to give and to be um, sacrificial and full of worship and giving. So Lord, um, make us more like Jesus is the bottom line for us. In your name we pray, amen. This has been a presentation of the teaching ministry of Calvary Fellowship. For more content or information, visit calvaryfellowship.org.